I was going to say, speaking off of what Chantel was saying, I am, I am very, very scared. And I'm, I'm very scared because like COVID, we've seen that we might be in the same storm, but not on the same boat. Welcome. I'm David Castro, board member of the Alliance of Leadership Fellows. Today, the Alliance is excited to continue a series of national conversations engaging leaders at the frontiers of social justice. Our conversation today is about the climate crisis, which now threatens not only human communities around the world, but also the ecosystems that support life on Earth. Our series is called Talk That Walks. Our program convenes frontline leaders at the critical place where thought becomes change. The leaders in today's dialogue inhabit the transition point where experience and insight take flight as impactful action. We want to thank the Americana Foundation for supporting today's conversation. To learn more about the vision and mission of the Alliance, visit us on the web at allianceofleadershipfellows.org. I'm passing the baton now to Daniel Katz. Daniel is a leading global environmental activist. He's the founder of the renowned Rainforest Alliance and also serves as the lead environmental advisor to the Overbrook Foundation. He's also a Kellogg Foundation National Leadership Fellow. Daniel will be your guide for the rest of this event. Thanks, David. Nice to see you all. And uh, Esther and Chantel, is, thank you so much for being here right now. We are going to talk about the very small topic of the climate crisis. We should be able to solve this problem in a very short while. So to get started, I was wondering if both, uh, both of you could tell us uh, where you are and uh, the, the work that you're doing and the organization that you're working for in a, in a climate context, please, if that's okay. And let me go first, uh, just to set the stage. As David mentioned, I, I am the, I started and I'm still the board chair for the Rainforest Alliance. We're an, an international organization that works in around 80 countries around the world. We work with over 4 million farmers on an annual basis. Uh, these are typically smallholder farmers. We help them with agricultural practices. We also work with 5,000 companies to get them to better understand their unique role uh, in sustainability and the climate crisis and how they can better support farmers. And we also work uh, with consumers all around the world trying to get them on the sustainability journey. I've been doing this work for a long time now. I started the Rainforest Alliance in 1987 when I was 24 years old. Don't do the math. Um, and in that period of time, there's been a lot of change. So many more people are aware of these issues, and yet the problems are still very, very large. So with that, I'm going to, Esther, do you want to go first and tell us a little bit about yourself? And then we'll go to Chantel, and then, and then we'll start it up. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. It's so hard to not do the math when you say don't do the math. <laughs> uh, but don't I'm so math. grateful to be here. <laughs> thank you for having me. My name is Esther, and I am based out of Brooklyn, New York today. 
Um, and what I, the hat that I'm wearing today is uh, I am a climate policy research fellow at the Aspen Institute, where I'm looking at the offshore wind industry and trying to figure out what are some areas within the ecosystem where we could really think about equity and justice and prioritize frontline communities um, within this emerging uh, new uh, space. So it is uh, very exciting to be here. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Esther. Chantel? Yeah, I'm also really excited to be here. So my name is Chantel Bingham. I currently make my home in Atlanta, Georgia, but I'm originally from North Carolina. Um, always have to give gratitude to the folks that got me here. I'm the great granddaughter of tobacco sharecroppers, black farmers, labor um, workers on the, the railroad and domestic workers and um, take a great pride in all the folks that kind of made me who I am today and my family legacy. Uh, I work for the Climate Justice Alliance, which is a national organization of about 89 member orgs now. Um, we represent and are run by what we call frontline base building our power communities. So these are communities on the front lines of the climate crisis. They're on the front lines, the fence lines of polluting industry. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's an honor to be on this, this panel with you all today and um, wearing my hat as the organizing director at CJA. That's great. Uh, you both have awesome backgrounds and look forward to learning more. Um, you know, in 1989, and I don't some I think you were maybe born. Uh, in 1989, I was in I was in just a couple years into starting the Rainforest Alliance, and I went to Washington, DC for meetings on on conserving biodiversity and was invited to uh, a slideshow in the basement of a Senate building that a young senator from Tennessee was giving. And that was Al Gore in the early days of talking about the climate problem. And I remember walking out of that room going, wow, that climate problem, that's really big, but I'm trying to save biodiversity. I can't do both. And it took a number of years to recognize the interconnectedness between biodiversity and the climate crisis. From then, the the Rainforest Alliance got more involved in, in climate. It's been a part of it. How did you both get involved in the climate crisis? And it must have changed from some other trajectory you were on as a, as a young person to this. So what happened? Chantel, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, I so I got my start actually in the food justice movement. Um, so before we move, I'm actually a recent transplant to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but before here, I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for a number of years and, um, got really close to a lot of many communities that were just trying to grow food for themselves. Um, many of these communities were black and brown communities living in public and subsidized housing. They don't have the rights to their land. They didn't even have rights to use the outside water spigot. And I'm being quite honest to water their cars. I mean, not water their cars, but wash their cars, let alone water a garden. Um, and I started an organization called Growing for Change as a Dalai Lama Fellow. And that was 
back in 2015 um, and then remained in Charlottesville, Virginia for, for a while, um, got involved with the food justice movement, food sovereignty movement there, led a, a coalition called um, the Food Justice Network of Charlottesville. It was part of the Cultivate Charlottesville. And um, yeah, I it was really intrinsic for me, the connection between our food, our environment, environmental racism, um, access to land that is good and healthy and soil that is healthy to grow in. Um, those that don't have that same access that might have be growing in soil that was the site of a brownfield. And so a lot of that work, um, when it came time to uproot myself due to some, some life changes, um, really, really paved my way to being introduced to the climate justice movement. Um, so I come through, I come to this work as a, as a grassroots local organizer, um, really believing that all the change that we want to see really happens at the municipality level, because that's where I enacted change. It happens at the rural local level with these, these small board of supervisors and things like that. Um, and so for me, the Climate Justice Alliance was essentially the only national organization I could work for because our organizing model is about translocal community power um, and, and was able to get in through the door because of the way that I was oriented in a lot of the work that I that I led locally with, with communities. And um, since then, I've been heightenedly turned into the climate um, justice movement. That's, I mean, it's always been undeniable, especially if you're someone who's an urban farmer, you're seeing your crops you know, face flooding uh, and and you're seeing extreme droughts. You're seeing a lot of these different environmental changes that, you know, if you're trying to grow food, it becomes, you know, imperative, especially for folks that can't afford food to put on their tables, at least fresh, nutritious food to put on their tables. So um, a lot of the work was already there and, and a part of a lot of the things that I did locally, but um, I would say that was kind of my stepping stone for getting more at this this national climate justice field. Um, it really started with the food sovereignty movement for me. And I'll pass it on to, to Esther. Thank you for sharing your story, Chantel. One thing that I failed to mention early on in my introduction is that I was I am the product of a frontline uh, EJ community in Brooklyn and New York. And um, in my community, we have, we had about three peak year plants, a waste transfer station, um, uh, a waste uh, treatment plant, um, all within a very small radius uh, where half of the uh, community is low income, working class, less than um, about a third are living in poverty, um, less than half have a high school education. And that really helped to inform uh, what it is that I cared about, right? I know that this is a community with a lot of need, but also it is a community with great strength and great ability. And everyone that I knew growing up uh, had a lot of uh, was really creative and crafty with their hands. And uh, that made me really, really interested in the clean energy conversations because when I was in those rooms, all I heard about was the technological innovations that are gonna help us 
solve or get our get a, get us out of this mess, which yes, are important, but also how we engage and bridge and talk to communities that are living the impacts firsthand about how they can be a part of the conversation was not a piece that I saw that was um, that was there, and that's what got me really interested in trying to figure out how do we bridge that gap, how do how do we connect communities that have skills. Um, maybe not packaged in the way that we think about when we uh, when we are thinking about the transition, but they have the skills to build, do retrofit, uh, to install solar panels, uh, to people who are thinking about financing those projects and uh, uh, thinking about designing policy. And where do I really fit in 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 that in that space? So that's what really got me interested. It was one. Uh, my background about where I come from, but also uh, the the opportunity that I had to be in spaces where we are constantly thinking about the opportunity. Uh, as you mentioned, we've come a long way since Al Gore first started talking about an inconvenient truth, and I applaud him for all the great work that he did. And now uh, we're off to the races, right? And we're trying to figure out how to how we're going to be building the future that we need, which is a very exciting, but we must also not forget that there are a lot of communities like the one where I come from that have so many, uh, so many skills already. And how are we utilizing that, that workforce, that skill set to build the future, adjust an equitable future that we want. And this is why uh, the IRA, the infrastructure, the Infra inflation reduction act makes me so excited, right? Because it sort of centers justice um, at the heart of it. Right. So I'm getting ahead of myself because so what, I'm very excited so about let's, it. <laughs> let's take, we're going to get into the the Inflation Reduction Act, Recovery Act, and um, and some of the other things that you talked about. But but let me ask just both of you. Uh, you both spoke with great passion, and I, I wonder if the work that you're doing now, do you feel like it's a job or is it a calling? <laughs> no, it's definitely not a job. Um, I don't know. I, I wake up every morning with a heightened sense of like fear and anxiety and also just a lot of hope because of where I work and who I work with. But, um, you know, there we lost so many people. And and I mean that like I have lost so many people and community members. Right. Um, through the pandemic, um, we have had to bury a lot of folks that didn't have access to healthcare and then have access to even not work their job, uh, right? To, to not be exposure. They're on the front lines, they're in the grocery stores, they're working in fields, um, picking our our um our crops and just doing all types of 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 hard frontline labor. Um and then to have that also in, on top of increased wildfires, increased hurricanes in Texas, there was, you know, the winter storm that really knocked out so power for so many folks. Um, and to continue to have all of these these intense threats, um, and to see like your folks that are your friends and family, you know, kind of perish, it it, it builds this heightened sense of. Um, not only anxiety and like, yes, passion, but like you, it's, it's, it's now or never. Right. And we work, uh, incredibly hard and, um, it's not, 
you know, a game to us. I feel like if you speak to Elizabethan Perry from Uprose, right. Or, um, you know, any of the Diana from, from Southwest Workers Union, like all of these folks that make up our, our communities in, in the Climate Justice Alliance, um, there's a lot of, of grieving that goes on. Um, and so it's really hard to, to hold both, but we're, we're motivated by, you know, a future for ourselves that folks are actively building. Uh, we, we're, we're motivated by our, our community and a really deep love for um, our land and our planet. I mean, so many folks that I work with were are environmentalists without using the word and, and aren't necessarily like the face that you would see on the on the the magazine or the grist or whatever thing you're looking at, but like they deeply care for and have a lot of indigenous cultural practices of caring for the land that we find ourselves on. And um, that motivates me a little bit more than the fear and the sadness and the grief of loss, uh, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, it's definitely not just a job. I, 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 you, it can't be a job. Um, you know, so yeah. fear, you mentioned fear, anxiety, hope, now or never, motivation. That's a lot to carry. And even and clearly, that doesn't sound like a job. <laughs> um, that sounds like a, a calling or, you know, you can't be any place else but here doing this kind of work. Even when you know the climate crisis is very difficult to solve. And in our lifetime, you know, while it's here, it is, it, you know, some people would like to think, well, it's, it's out in the future. But in fact, it's here, right? We have greenhouse gas numbers baked in to what is happening to the weather and the climate right now. So it is upon us and it's happening faster than I think even a lot of scientists would have predicted. So it's something that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And, and for you and those people in those communities, it is indeed uh, a, a lot to, to think about, a lot to uh, fix when, when just daily things, like if you're a farmer, you know, you're, you're, you've got so many, so many other things to worry about. It's a compound interest. So Esther, what about you? Is it a job or a calling? Yeah, I, I was going to say, picking off of what Chantel was saying, I am, I am very, very scared. And I'm, I'm very scared because like COVID, we've seen that we might be in the same storm, but not on the same boat, right? Uh, we've lost a lot of community members. I've lost a lot of community members also. Um, and it was, it, we're living in a time where we have extreme inequity baked into our system. And it's not from today, but it is from decades of historical injustices that we have um, passed on through policy, right? And I think this energy, I'm scared one, but also hopeful because I know that the energy transition could mean something different for communities like my own. It could mean jobs. It could mean economic opportunities. It could mean healthier living environments, right? We are very hardworking people and we deserve to live in conditions that are humane, especially because we're in one of the richest countries 
in the world, in the history of the of the world, right? So if we can't do it now with people that are very smart, whenever I look at my colleagues, I just see very passionate and smart people who care about this and want to do what's right, not only because it's right, but because it it's going to help us become better as a human race. Um, so I am I'm excited for it. And it is a calling. It's a calling because when I go back, when I'm at home and I see and I'm walking through my neighborhood, I see people who work very hard, come back home and are very, very tired. And I think that it is it it is our responsibility to make sure that if they're working, that they should be working for a better life for themselves, um, that they should be happy, right? And and we have the ability to do that. So I, it's, it's an exciting time too. Yeah, thank you. That was, um, that was really wonderful. So Esther, I want to come back and ask you in just a second about, you talked about um, the an energy and, and renewable energy difference. It'll, it'll, it can mean something different for these people and for the country, if not the world. Um, but first, I wanted to ask you both, you're, you're both in spending time in communities. How many of the people you encounter when you're in those communities understand what the climate crisis is and feels feels like they're a part of of it? Or are they just is it just too much? There's too many other things that are going on. And it's okay, this is just another difficult pain that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Or has it gotten to the point where it's like, so I was in Ghana about a month and a half ago, and I was spent time with, with cocoa farmers. And for the first time ever there, you know, I, that I'd heard, because a few years ago, I was in Colombia with coffee farmers, and they're saying, we asked about the climate crisis. And they're saying, well, maybe we don't really know, really, we don't really know. But now, just a few years later, it seems like everyone is talking about the climate crisis and the impacts it's having. They are having, they, they would say, well, it's not necessarily uh, predictable, but it's more extreme. It's more extreme drought. It's heavier rains. But so, but in your communities, what are you experiencing with people? Chantel, what about? I'm like, does Esther want to go first? Um, <laughs> You know, I the answer is really easy for me because the Climate Justice Alliance, you know, our membership are folks that have come to our, our alliance and are part of our alliance because they are actively engaged in transforming their communities and preparing them or have been preparing, have been adapting um, to, to climate change, have been on the forefront of, of fighting environmental racism. They have a lot of different toxic industries that are you know, pumping toxins, forever chemicals into their water. Um, they can no longer fish in them. So they're fighting that. They, they have folks that are pumping uh, different pollutions into their air and kids are getting sick, you know. So I think that, you know, in terms of our communities, if you're talking about um, the way that we have uh, different membership out, all throughout Appalachia, like working class white communities that have been coal miners for for years, or you could be talking about folks that are on the Gulf Coast, um, right where drilling and oil refinery refineries are. Cancer Alley is. Um, you have folks that are in the Southwest and the Midwest um, where there's a lot of mining industry as well, either mining for gold 
you're talking about Nevada and you have uh, communities fighting for water rights um, in the midst of extreme drought, right? And there's just this tug of war always with, with corporations and um, communities that are on the forefront of fighting that. And so uh, just really many of ours are, there's no, there's no question about the climate crisis. And there's also no question about what is causing it. <laughs> you know, they, they very much, you know, are seeing that when their, their water and their air and their soil is polluted, um, that is also driving water table draining and in extreme droughts and wildfires. So I, I don't necessarily, you know, I hope I wish, I wish I had a different answer for you, but um, for us, it's like the communities that have been working in these industries for a very, very long time already know what the root cause is. The things that we say a lot is that, you know, the transition to, to renewables is inevitable, but justice is not. And so the things that we are fighting for are for our communities that have been on the forefront of that to be at the decision-making table on this clean energy transition and really make sure that it's just, you know, there are a lot of things, Esther mentioned that the IRA, there was a lot of things that was incorporated in that. And then there was also a lot of things that were very, very much missing that I, I look forward to talking about um, that were really detrimental for our communities to really have a just transition, right? And so we have so many things that we have to do. Um, and we are definitely behind, not only in time, but in, in our strategies that we're currently implementing all at the same time, that our communities don't we're, we're not necessarily sitting around thinking about if this is happening or not because they're living in it. We're thinking about the solutions and we're thinking about how can we get our voices at the table so that we can pass these solutions so folks can survive. Um, and so, so yeah, I don't, I'll definitely stop there because I feel like I've said a lot and pass it over to you, Esther. Yeah, I, I would say that our community is not a monolith, right? Uh, we are at different, uh, different um, sides of the spectrum. There is, um, we're, we're at different places. Uh, the view that I come, one of the reasons why I got really interested in the offshore wind industry is because I sit on an advisory board that is going to be distributing $5 million for uh, clean energy um, to develop the workforce for the offshore wind industry here in the state, in New York City. Now, this, there, this was part of a community benefit agreement that was brokered between a developer and the city of New York to bring investments to disadvantaged communities. And specifically one disadvantaged community, which is the one that I am a part of, um, is going to be housing a 75-acre manufacturing and industrial uh, and assembly plant for this offshore wind developer. And when this is, this is big, 75 acres in, in, in our backyard, right? And when I go and talk to my elected representatives about the industry, when I talk to um, community board members uh, about, about the industry, there is that 
level, there's that lack of understanding. These are groups that are have decided that they want to be a part of the conversation, right? That are selected to be involved in community affairs, but they do not, there is that lack of understanding of like what this industry could really mean for the community in terms of jobs, in terms of economic opportunities. And I think there is a huge disconnect on one, the, the advancements, the investments that we're making at the federal level and at the state level, and that what information is being trickled down to the community in terms of what this could mean in actuality. And I think that's a, that's a huge missed opportunity because we need people to, one, be aware of the jobs that are coming in so they can start preparing themselves, looking for uh, trainings and workshops, but that's that's not happening because there isn't that level of um, understanding yet. And I think that that's a big opportunity that we have. So I think there, there's a there's a big spectrum of understanding of the way that we could capitalize on this transition. Right. So there's so you're you're talking about this disconnect between what's happening at a community level or happening in reality and what happens at the federal level, et cetera. There are those who would say we have to bring the greenhouse gas numbers down at any cost. And nobody will benefit if the numbers keep on rising. So how do you respond to, to those who would say that when they aren't regarding what happens in communities or in frontline communities, or those who have been hit first and worst by the climate crisis, who only want to see who want to see the numbers go back down to 1990 or 1970 levels you know talk about can you talk about that disconnect and how you deal with that Chantel, you do you want to go because you were talking about the solutions that you that yeah. you that, that could... there's actually something that Esther said that I really wanted to respond to if that's okay to Definitely. Um, so when we were talking, you were talking about the disconnect, Esther, and I'm, I'm really curious, like if the community is the same one that I know of in New York that we have members of that have also been working on offshore, um, when, and I just had a, a couple of questions for you, um, because you had mentioned like the jobs that would potentially be coming into the community. And I know that one of the things that we really fought for with the IRA was a civilian climate corps that was completely cut out. And what the civilian climate corps would do was ensure that people got proper training to be able to work the jobs that you were talking about. They didn't need to go, you know, find some how do you even how do you even find training if you don't even know what it is? And so there were some really clear legislative pieces that were left out for our communities that we really advocated extremely hard for within the IRA bill. Um, that, you know, they know that industry is coming and it's not actually that they don't necessarily want that. It's that we've been advocating for policies that have been left off the table that, so we, it leaves us unready to even fulfill the jobs that, that you might be claiming and, and, and that those jobs might be filled by someone else that is not necessarily those communities. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. And there was something else that, that you had noted about the, about offshore wind, um, 
that I really wanted to get in a little bit later because I do feel like there's a disconnect between a lot of the things that, you know, communities that I work with are asking for, community-owned solar or community projects that was also X out of the IRA, right? In exchange for this, you know, corporate wind and solar energy, which was also linked to, ironically, fossil fuel leasing um, as this quid pro quo. And so for us, we didn't, we didn't see, you know, you're, I've had conversations with folks that were in Kentucky. There, there were just, we just had the Kentucky floods. They were joining from a hotel. We're going to be online with a key legislator in the Senate, their staff to talk about the IRA bill. And, you know, these coal miners are saying like, Hey, we've worked in the mines. We've been trying to transition our community to community owned solar. And this is the, this is the, the piece of legislation that you've cut out for us. That was like for us. So we can transition our community. So I don't think there's so much of a of a disconnect as there is just like a lot of different, it feels like a lot of organizations that might be bigger and more aligned are kind of what Daniel's speaking to, just like at all costs cut GHG emissions and are completely ignoring community solutions that yes, would also cut GHG emissions that yes, would also be equitable and just and bring close equity gaps and kind of just closing the door on us. So it feels as though, you know, it's not that we don't understand. It's just that folks aren't necessarily listening to our solutions as things that, you know, would be right. And so we, we, you know, we come to these tables of corporate offshore wind and feeling already at a disadvantage, you know, when you're at, when you're at tables with folks that seems as though, you know, they want to highlight you as, as, um, as your words just not being as important as maybe an, an academic or, or a professor or a large corporation entity. And so um, that for me is kind of the, the gap that I'm seeing more so than like, there's not a, not, you know, the knowledge gap. People definitely know we just have different solutions that unfortunately the industry um, is trying to fight for. Yeah. I agree. I think to your to your point, the the IRA tax credits for the offshore wind industry for offshore wind developers could mean that projects are up to fifty percent off of total cost because we are incentivizing very large scale commercial generation in in the hopes that we get to a net zero path by twenty fifty. Right. So it is our goal to drive down emissions, but at, again, at what cost, right? And how are we diversifying our energy sources so that they're more equitable and they're more just and they're bringing people into the fold. But as of right now, what we have, what we have is we're incentivizing large scale generation, right? And we are hoping that they bring in benefits for disadvantaged communities uh, through CBA, through community benefit agreements or project labor agreements, right? But if there is no form of accountability for those uh, community benefit agreements or the or those project labor agreements, then we get to the same point. We could um, be making some of the same mistakes as we have in the past where we have developers and large-scale generators sort of uh, perpetuating past harms, right? And I think that is the opportunity that we have now under the IRA is to really provide models and ideas and lift them up through public comments 
uh, or request for information where we could um, highlight some of the solutions that we have um, or that, uh, yeah, where organizations are already who have been thinking about these challenges, um, put them, um, add them into the, into the scope yeah. of work. Right. So did you, if you want, did you want to add something? No, I, I, I do agree with that. And I just wanted to make the plug that our communities do. We have made a just transition principles for offshore wind, you know, and have been following uh, the work that, you know, you talked to, spoken to Esther on like regulating all of these things, because we know we have to do both. Um, and so it just becomes a lot for us to be in on these community, you know, outreach. We always submit comments. We, we have tons of guidelines that we have developed. Um, and I'm happy to like share those things with you. It's just a matter of if people are really listening. Um, and that's kind of where I see, you know, the the allyship that's necessary between, you know, some larger environmental organizations that have a little bit more weight and gravity, you know, than maybe we do. Um, and really being able to push and advocate and without uh, compromise, yeah, for, for a lot of times without compromise to be able to adhere to these community community values because we will get at the same destination. We are all trying to get to the same destination. I think of all of our communities are also like, yes, in fossil fuel production, like, can we just stop this now and accelerate as quickly as we can? And so a lot of our solutions, a lot of our guidelines, a lot of the things that we suggest are on the exact same path. Um, and so, just wanting to say that out loud too. Right. So it is complicated, right? I mean, the climate crisis is probably the most wicked problem in our lifetime, potentially ever. It's not, we are not going to come to an agreed upon solution for everyone at one time. We went backwards during the Trump administration. I remember during the Obama administration, the second term especially, I felt like, wow, we are making progress here. We're actually gonna, we're gonna get there. And then we went one step forwards and about five steps backwards. We pulled out of the Paris Treaty. With the passing of the Inflation Re Reduction Act, the United States is putting more money into the climate crisis than in any other act activity or, or bill or legislation ever, and yet it's not perfect. As Chantel said, there are a number of things that were cut out of it. Knowing that we're not gonna get to perfection, um, do you think that we can, the different parties can agree on a pathway or can we agree upon uh, solutions that will in fact bring, bring down greenhouse gas numbers and support the frontline communities is is it is that possible or do you think it's going to be um it's going to be a fight every step of the way yeah Esther, you know, go ahead yeah, i'm gonna let you go first esther do you want to give it a shot oh uh sure i can i can give it a shot um I think, so if we take a step back, we've been talking a lot about the IRA, but the IRA, 
the reason why I'm very excited is because we are entering an exciting era. And this is the era where there is a federal type of legislation for the first time since we've been since we first started talking about climate that is commensurate of the problem that we see and that is the IRA right we have 369 billion dollars that are going to be um, allocated for climate solutions um, and these are uh, climate solutions that really get us on a pathway for that really invest in climate technology that get that will get us to net zero, right? Um, that will mean that we can see up to 42% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, and within that, we have a lot of money that is going to uh, lower for lower and middle income Americans for clean energy technology that has to do with clean uh, the, the deployment of heat pumps and electric vehicles, insulation. It has money to um, give, to compensate people for their time, especially when we, as Chantel mentioned, we're trying to engage community on how to best, uh, how to best deploy some of this uh, technology, what is the best path forward that really is inclusive and puts justice at the center of the solution. So there's money to compensate people for their time when they are going into these meetings and giving their, their recommendations, right? And yes, there's a lot that was left out of this bill um, that could have made, uh, made the path easier for communities, uh, frontline disadvantaged communities. But um, I think that overall, it is a, a good a good step in that in the direction that where we are for the first time saying that clean energy technologies are a safe bet, and that the federal government, the U.S. government, is backing up these investments with with money, right? With money that then could potentially unleash other capital that is um, other capital that uh, is available to continue making these investments and bring down the cost of uh, offshore wind, bring down the cost of renewables, because unlike oil, renewables are, the cost of renewables is brought down the more that we invest in it, the more that we deploy it, um, as we've seen with solar um, and the cost of uh, per energy, the cost of um, the generation uh, per gigawatt um, hour. And it has always been a fight. I feel like getting us to do the right thing has always been a struggle um, is because people who are in power do not really understand what it is to be in a community that has three peaker plants or a waste transfer station, right? They do not come uh, to that to the table with that level of understanding or um, really asking questions about, yes, if we do this, what does that mean for uh, this disadvantaged community? But now with greater awareness and with more people like Chantel and organizations um, that are at the table and really being very loud about what this could mean 
I think it, 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 there is a good opportunity to really debate how this money gets spent and uh, provide a path forward that is just and equitable. And I think that this, the IRA is just a start to the conversation where we're starting to allocate money, but there is a good opportunity to really make it something uh, that yeah. is fair. That's, that's great. Thanks, Esther. So Chantel, uh, Esther said a lot about um, there are a lot of great things in the in the uh, IRA, and, but are they great for the communities that you work for? And you talked before about those solutions. And, you know, without, I don't mean to be, not to be controversial, but we often hear, I often hear from uh, uh, the, the environmental justice community about false solutions, the, the solutions that aren't going to help uh, the, they aren't equitable. They aren't really going to. Uh, they aren't going to work for everyone. Can you talk about some of the solutions, the promising solutions that you think are out there, or that that can that can occur now, with or without the IRA? Yeah, um, you know I, that's a really great question, Daniel, and thanks for asking. Um, I think. You know, one of we didn't really speak too much about, you know, this term climate justice and what that really means. Um, but for me and a lot of the communities that, you know, I work I work with and for and are in movement with, they climate justice is is more than just about focusing on um the environment. It's it's really looking at this intersection of people and place and all of the things that make up. Uh, who they are, and also understanding that climate justice in a real way was birthed out of the environmental justice movement. And for us, that is about really recognizing that it's not just anybody in America that is is bearing the brunt of this crisis. It, re it really is Black and Indigenous communities, working class white communities, you know, people of color that are bearing the brunt of this. And, you know, if they're not if they're not in the center of, of a lot of the solutions that we that we're trying to come up with and make, then we can't really claim for it to be to be just. And um, so, like I said before, a lot of our solutions really aren't so different. Like we need to transition to clean, renewable energy. We know that, you know, we want to be at the table when we talk about um, solar. Right. As I brought this up before with the, the coal miner in, the, in Kentucky and them trying to get community owned solar and transition. Right. Um, we want to be at the table when we talk about wind and, um, you know, all of these other types of energy that would really help our communities. Uh, I think the problem is when we talk about solutions, what we're seeing, and I'll speak from my personal eye in Georgia, is that there is so much inequity in America that you know, I'll drive down my street and I live, I have, you know, in a more middle-class, upper middle-class uh, suburban area. And you see a lot of folks that have, have solar panels on the top of their houses. Um, you're seeing, you know, folks that might be renters, right? Low income renters, um, seeing their rent grow, go up when, their, their landlord gets a tax credit to, to winterize their house and provide solar. And the idea is that there's going to be this trickle down so that their energy bill is going to be less. But really what they're doing is slapping a couple hundred dollars onto their rent and forcing people out 
right? And so there's there's a lot of different intersections that um, in the climate justice movement we're working at, the intersection of race. We talk about the intersection of class. We talk about, you know, what does that mean for affordable housing in this renewable energy transition? Um, and so when we're when we're thinking about solutions that work for us, community-owned solar isn't some little fancy idea. We're really saying that when we don't have any type of rights, when we're seeing upper-class communities slap solar on, they're able to sell that back to the grid. They are they are moving away from us. The only the only solutions we have is to band together, right? As low-income communities of color, and that is what we've been doing. We've been banding together to get you know community-owned solar, and so it does mean a lot when a bill comes out, and that's and that's an important thing for us to advocate for, and it's missing, right? Um, it does mean a lot when we're still drinking water that has lead in it and it's missing from the IRA, 10 million households. Like these things are, so we're dealing with, with a lot of different over, overlapping issues. And I really do feel as though um, a lot of times when we talk about the climate crisis, we get so hyper focal uh, uh, focused on GHG emissions, which yes, are important too. And and yes, there's so many things that we can do to, to limit it, uh, that, that stock of GHG emissions in the atmosphere that our communities also care about. We're just saying that, hey, could you please like do these solutions in kind of this way? Yes, yes, it's important that corporations transition to solar, that's good, but we're seeing our neighbors across the railroad tracks buy solar panels and, and get their own self-determined energy. They're going off grid, they're able to sell back. We are getting left extremely behind economically and we are being pushed out of our communities. And so um, a lot of the solutions that we're calling for are so we, so we can remain in place. Uh, I think that there's different um, solutions also around mutual aid for our communities that we don't oftentimes talk about. There's a lot more solutions around like, how can you really train up a workforce and labor force um, so that they can, you know, be the technicians to a lot of these renewable energy situations that I named before that that is completely left off the table. And so I can't claim that the IRA is a climate justice bill um, because there's so much justice that was left out of it that essentially makes it it makes it very hard for our communities to access it and to feel like we're not getting left behind in, in, in its entirety. I will say, yes, it's it could be a start to, um, you know, renewables in America, but, you know, it's not a start to decreasing inequity. It's not a start to, you know, tackle a lot of the systemic um, racism that we see within many of our systems that are very interconnected. Um, if you're talking about our food, if you're talking about housing, if you're talking about energy, transportation, all of these are interconnected issues. Um, and, and our community-based solutions offer interconnected solutions that just aren't being considered, to be so, honest. So, so Chantel, are you, do you feel like the IRA can be salvaged? Or do you feel like, is it possible that you think it's going to be another situation that's going to be uh, that won't end up being helpful? Oh, so I don't mean to say that we stop fighting, right? Like, let us not forget that like what we wanted was a Green New Deal, mm -hmm. right? What we wanted was build back better, right? 
And there was a lot of different tries. And then what we got is the IRA. Um, and, and, and we're going to continue to try. Like our community still need the solutions that we've been positing. I think what's more important to me now than ever is that a lot of uh, organizations that have a little bit more political and weight and a little bit more political power maybe than the Climate Justice Alliance might have or other, you know, smaller organizations, frontline organizations and alliances might have that they really are teaming up with us. Um, you know, God willing, the midterm elections would come out, we're all blue again, and that we'd be audacious and, and, and very, uh, you know, just forward with climate justice solutions while we have the majority in the House and Senate and the presidency, which I think a lot of us were really, really hoping for um, because we had that, you know, that like little blue wave or whatever, um, that we would be able to uh, push more aggressively than what we've been doing. And I think that we we always are willing to try and are always open. We, we, we just right. want to not stop where- right. Clearly yeah. none of us can stop trying, um, you know, we have like zipped through our time here and we're going to close shortly, but, but Chantel, do you think that in the last, at least in my experience, in the last 10 years, maybe, while things haven't gotten better entirely, that their relationships between frontline communities and big green organizations uh, and philanthropy have, have gotten somewhat better that you see some, some improvements on that front? Or do you feel like, are, are we moving in the right direction? Or are we moving in the wrong direction? No, I don't think we're moving in the wrong direction at all. Look, <laughs> 10 years ago, they probably weren't even talking, you know? So I, we're definitely moving in the right direction. I, I do think that there's a lot more relationship building that needs to happen. And um, that just to be able to see each other as, as actually going in the right, in the same direction. Sometimes I think there's a lot of confusion between what communities really want and maybe what some big greens are asking for. And folks automatically write us off as like not trying to get to the same goal. And so I think that it's just important that we continue to be in relationship, continue to listen um, and follow the front, like really, really follow the front lead of a lot of our grassroots organizations, because I deeply believe we're going to get to the same destination. It's just whether or not we're going to be more equitable and just of a society than we are now. And mm -hmm. if big greens and, and funders say that they care about equity and justice, then, you know, we, we can definitely start going in that direction and um, just to be able to follow more and trust us a bit more than maybe, maybe what, has been trust, what, what we've been trusted with in the past. So... So thinking about moving in the right direction, as I said at the beginning, I've been working on environmental issues for a long time, close to 40 years, not if not 40 years. Awareness has gotten a lot better. Some of the solutions are coming along. I believe we have all the technology that we need to solve all of the climate problems, but we don't have the will of the people. We live in a world where there's heightened anxiety as Chantal, you were saying early on, I have children who are so worried that they're not going to have the same kind of lives that uh, people in the past generations have had because of 
climate insecurity. I'm at the point where I'm getting ready to pass the baton. I've been doing this for a long time, right? So for, as I said, several decades. So can you both imagine for a second, it's 40 years from now for you both and things have gone right. What kind of world are you passing on to your children and grandchildren? What's worked? So what, what does the United States look like and what kind of situation are we in? And if, if things can go right, realistically, not like, you know, we're just going to wave the magic wands, but what do you think? 2060. Esther? There's so many ways to answer this question, um, but I'm going to go very, very um, uh, at the community, at the community level, very, very micro. And I, I would say that for communities like the one where I grew up in, in Brooklyn, I would love to see more focus on um, on healthcare. I think people are sick either from overworking too much or uh, pollution, environmental pollution that we've seen over the past few years. Um, I would love to see access to good quality healthcare that they can they can go to a doctor whenever they can whenever they need to. Uh, more access to parks. With me, where I grew up in, you can throw, kick a ball and hit someone in the head because there's only one park for uh, so many people in one in one area. Um, more access to affordable housing. I think that is a huge, the challenge of our day. Every time we see homelessness and that number is continuing to rise and people need to have, be able to know that they are going to be able to afford their um, their home in the next few months. So I would start with very basic things like what access about, to so, healthcare. So, okay. Yeah. So can you just tie that into the climate crisis though? You're working on offshore energy and renewable resources. The, you know, we have, we are, we are dealing, we're in the midst of this crisis, but in 40 years from, because of your work and your colleagues work, what's, is it is the difference that there is well i don't know from a from a climate point of view how do you answer that question yeah from a climate point of view i would say that people are employed in well paying jobs people have good uh, good paying jobs that they can walk to from home right i mentioned that we have a 45 acre manufacturing site in a low income working class community there are people who live right up the street from this 75 acre manufacturing assembly plant ideally they would be able to work to walk to the assembly part where they can do their work and then come back and be and uh, have electricity that isn't um, eating a third of their income, right? Cheap electricity that is available whenever they uh, need it. Um, and um, do not have to rely on 
heavy transportation because one of the questions that we have right now with the offshore development of the offshore wind industry is how are they going to be bringing in some of the materials that they're going to need for the assembly of these uh, uh, these uh, turbines? Are they going to be using water or are they going to be using uh, train uh, tr trucks? Um, that are going to be coming into these communities. So I guess those are the very basic things. <laughs> now I'm just going to push you one more one more time. It's 2060. Have we solved the climate crisis? <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, yeah. we have solved the climate. I, in an ideal world, yes, we need to have solved the climate crisis where we see. Um, microgrids, community microgrids, where we see uh, offshore wind, uh, where people are not turning on their lights whenever they want to, but have more conscious understanding that we should be using or reducing our use of uh, energy. <laughs> um, and uh, So we have systemically done enough. We've changed the will of the people. We've used the technology and things are better oh my gosh thank you i feel like like are you asking me to answer like yes i am no, <laughs> so i don't What's, know what is what do you think i mean i know that you know you want we want system you you want a climate just world probably requires some systematic changes have we done that it's and it by the time that you're done working you know you're you're about to go and you know go swim in the ocean for the rest of your life and say, I'm done. I've done my job. What's, what is the world looking like? You know, I, I, I'm going to co-sign Esther's ideal. I, I mean, I will say my ideal situation is, um, you know, Esther was explaining localized economies, which is, is tantamount important. I think COVID-19 pandemic taught us that regardless if it's if it's some weather extreme weather event or if it's you know a health related issue that our supply chains are very fragile and they can break and um i don't think that the world that we're going in in which you know we've already i think we've already heated this planet by 1.3 degrees celsius already there's a lot of irreversible <laughs> things that we're going to experience. And so we're going to continue to see, you know, more droughts and more wildfires and more intense storms. And, and, you know, what Esther was explaining, the way that we need to adapt is to move away from being so um, corporate. I think in the, if we're talking, even talking about the food system, it's ran by almost just four corporations, right? Like four big food and ag corporations almost control the 70% of our food system. And so if we really want to survive, you know, in what world looks like in, in 2060 is the, these localized food systems. We need space to grow our food in our own communities. Esther was talking about um, community-owned solar, neighborhood grids. We need that. Um, I was just reading an article about Hurricane Ida that ripped through Florida and the one community that that had power was was a small community that right was on solar, That's and right. so I think it's really important that um, our grids get a little bit broken up to to the neighborhood block level, and and we're able to have 
more community engagement in running our society. You know, I think that there's going to be a huge shift to what we like to call a regenerative economy where, you know, we're not just dependent on some some big uh Tyson's grow like chicken to grow all of our chickens for each other. Um, I think the world I want to live in is more cooperative. It's more community centered. Um, you know, people are able to to feed and keep their their um, their families fed, even if there is a huge storm that knocks out the power that keeps. I don't know, shipments from coming in for three weeks or whatever the thing is. I know that there'll be more potential (laughs) COVID-19, right? Strains that come out that might stop our society. And so, you know, we're already on this train and some of what we're seeing is, is irreversible. So it is really up to us to kind of restructure and and readapt our communities to, to fit. And for me, it is that localized transition that that is the the structure that we need to have um with the you know a lot of community owned projects and folks being engaged more so than you know us leaving it all up to big big corporations to do everything for us um that just doesn't work that's just not going to work in the world that i see anymore um there's too many, too many uh, factors with the climate to make that a reality. So, yeah. So yeah. you both gave really wonderful answers, and I, I have about a uh, hundred other questions that I want to ask you both. And this is a really amazing conversation. The one thing that gives me a sense of hope is that as as I age out of this world a little bit, is that you, Esther, and you, Chantel, are fighting so hard for our present and a better future. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your taking the time to to talk to me today. And thank you for all of the great work that you're doing. And I can't wait to, to watch your continued successes and read about the worlds that, the, the better world that you're both making. So thank you very much. Daniel, we really would have loved for you to like share your opinion more too. I feel like it was all Esther and I. Um, but it was really good to be with with both of you this uh, a- afternoon for me. I know it's still probably just getting to the afternoon for you, Daniel, on the West Coast, but it's been fun. We should do this again. <laughs> yeah, you come. You both yeah. come out. You know the climate. This I'm at this point where I feel like uh, we have to almost throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks because we're so late. And you both come at this from very different angles, but when you peel away a couple of layers of that onion, you're in a, you're in exactly the same place. And what we need to have happen is we need to peel away the layers of the onion for everybody, because ultimately we all pretty much anybody who's who believes in science anyway. <laughs> is going to come at it and recognize that we all need to do the same kinds of work. We know we're going to have to get by with a little bit less, or we're going to have to live a little bit differently. But in fact, the solutions are there. And 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 hopefully the, the will will be there so that we all march in the same direction and create a planet that's better for everyone and not just a few because with the climate crisis you know i tell people this all the time you can run but you cannot hide you can think that you're going to go to minnesota 
or Vermont, you know, that's not coastal, but the infectious diseases are going to follow you there. You know, there's it, there's no escaping it. Yeah, and and Daniel, just to to your point, I think there's so many opportunities. What makes me so excited about this space is that so there's so many opportunities to really come up with solutions uh, because we all have very different backgrounds and different life experiences that we come from it from different angles. So I am very hopeful for the future because of that, because of uh, we are trying to design a new just future and uh, we have people that are now interested in it and are feeling the effects, as you mentioned, of the crisis and that we need to act now. So I guess that would be my calling too to the audience to really figure out where you fit into the climate space and try to act, act from there because we need you. Yeah, so I'm looking to tie those market-based solutions and the community-based solutions together so that, so that they work in harmony and not against each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and somehow we are going to have to find a way to recognize that people want to make money, but they are not should not be allowed to make money off the backs of other people that hurts where they live and how they live. We're, we have to be, you know, we on Sunday in New York was the New York City Marathon. And one of the most it's one of the most um, life fulfilling things is to go out there and cheer on those people who run and we are rooting for everyone to win together and we're all participating and tens of thousands of people are on the sidelines just rooting for people that they don't even know to finish and to race and go let's go you can do it and I know that sounds a little crazy but we all need to have a little bit more of that to root for each other and to not be competitive but be all in it together. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I think that the competition thing is really kind of intrinsic to our society in a, in a lot of ways. Like we 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 maybe live in too much of a capitalist society that has gone a little bit too far. Um, and I think you know when you think about what is going to require to to really survive and make sure that everybody makes it through the climate crisis is really ideals of community well-being and, you know, being to, to what, you, you know, you've already shared a little bit, like really caring about if someone makes it to the finish line or not. Um, and I say that as a very competitive athlete at one point in my career, I was like top five in the world for um, the women's hurdles. So I'm very competitive and I love races <laughs> and, um, you know, went to, to university to, to run and all these things and got off on the social justice track when I was there. But, you know, I think that there's, there's so much when you talked about market-based solutions that right now it really is not, it is really rubbing gears a lot with, with, with equity and justice and, um, I think we have a, a very, very long way to go. Do you, do you think that they can they can come together? That's what that's what I was trying to get to. Can market-based solutions be equitable and work with justice? I'm not sure if the way in which uh, we've designed and think about market-based solutions can work hand in hand right now at all. Um, I think that there's too much of a focus on 
the economy. There's too, there's too, and when I say the economy, I really mean like really clearly industry, the fossil fuel industry. Um, there's a lot of different support to prop up um, those types of corporations surviving. And unfortunately, those are the same corporations that are in our backyards. And so um, there's a real tension there. I, I think that it's going to be incredibly hard um, when you're looking, when you're speaking with someone that really their bottom line really is making a really good return on investment in financial sense that is just not, um, it just is incompatible with the environment. It's always been incompatible with the environment, right? If it were compatible, we would not be in the situation. Um, and so, you know, I think that market-based solutions in general, like where they are right now, it's not, it's not the, the bullet. Um, but, you know, I'm always hopeful. I think folks are going to really have to redesign what they want as a, as a profit or a dividend and really start to think more critically about it than what they do now. Um, right you now, know, I don't think there's too much of it. I think back, like, how is it that at some point in time, somebody, um, was polluting the water or somebody else was burning something and it was going into the air and somebody else didn't say, hey, wait a minute, that's not your water. That's not your air. That's everybody's. If you're going to do that, you have to find a way that it's not going to impact us in a negative way. And it, it seems like the we got on that road and nobody ever just stopped and said, wait a minute, we can't be on this road unless it's a road that everybody can walk on together equally and, and support. Yeah. And it's going to be hard, right? We, I think what we need, Chantel, is we need someone like you and to work with Esther and others and to, and to build that playbook of how we get to net zero with solutions that work for everybody. I have not seen that. And I think that's what we need. We need specific Time, time delineated, solution centered playbook that that works for everybody, because we can't just say this is not right without saying here's a better way. Here's how we're going to do it, and 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 even bringing out you know working communities. I think that's great, but in, but if you look at that around the world, there are some you know if you look at China for example, there are some. Uh, provinces of China that have amazing soil and water and some that are desert and don't have anything. So the people there, do they just, are they just penalized because of where they live? Because, and, and so these community-based solutions are fantastic, but they may not work globally. Mm. So our problems are difficult, but I think that we have, you know, we have, we, we have the technologies and we have the will or if we have those things, we can't solve these problems. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, you know, community-based solutions for the U.S. that, you know, look very different if you're in South Sudan, which we are, like right now we have a group at COP, at the Conference of Parties in Egypt right now, and um, are moving and working with folks from Ghana. And you also like opened up about talking about the different cocoa farmers and you know, just to just to highlight that, yes, those communities also have their solutions as well and are also 
very vocal about it and are trying to do what they can to change um, their own environments and their own, you know, economies and really have a just transition uh, to a localized regenerative economy for, you know, where, where they're located as well. And so I think we get really uh, focused on like this bullet solution that can be scaled up. And sometimes I, I just want to posit that our scale up is already here and it has already happened. And just just to realize that when we talk about community-based solutions, like people have retrofitted communities or solutions to match their community. And it is in fact very much scaled. We just need the, the money, right, to implement them. Um, and so that's where I think the rubber really needs to hit the road. Um, because a lot of our communities, like we said before, are low-income communities. And so they just don't have the capital uh, like a lot of, you know, a lot of others might that are in the right. upper class. Right, that's the same thing. So in Ghana, one of the things we're doing, uh, the yields are smaller, are, are are going down because of the climate crisis. So we're at the rainforest lands working with these communities and helping them plant more trees and mm-hmm. come up with alternative incomes of raising bees, uh, raising snails, other ways that they can use the land better mm-hmm. and also raise more money um, and, you know, yeah. have, a better, have a better life. And I think we need to look at that acro- across the board. In, but in an industrialized world where we are using, our footprint is way bigger, uh, we have more responsibility. We have a greater responsibility in this country as a citizen of this country to do more, I believe. And our, the hardest part is to get those who have a lot more to either help more or live with less. Yeah, to your last point, I would add that those conversations between big groups and smaller environmental justice groups are happening, right? Right now at COP, we have the first climate justice pavilion in the history of COP where where people are hosting those conversations and coming up with solutions that they're going to be highlighting and writing up. And I think that's what makes it so exciting that now there is that push to do more integrative solution planning that reaches uh, different, that uh, goes across the aisle to come up with solutions that benefit all of us. So I'm excited for the outcomes of those conversations to be highlighted and shared with the group. Yeah, there are a lot more. There are so many more people who are involved in this field. There are graduates every day who are specializing in in uh, so many 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 different areas around uh, uh, renewables and new technologies and that's really exciting and in, in environmental justice you know you can get you can now get a, a, I think a master's or PhD in, in in so many different areas so that creates hope at the same time we are behind the eight ball we're late right so there's no time for for sitting around listening to podcasts, we all have to get to work. And I like the one we're recording right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're going to end this podcast right now, and we're going to all get back to work because we have to hurry up because those greenhouse gas numbers aren't going down yet. We need to make them go down, in, in a way that works for everyone. On behalf of the alliance, thank you for joining us today for this important conversation. It's our hope that sharing these ideas will open new pathways to effective action, supporting the fragile world we share. 
Thanks also to the Americana Foundation for supporting this series. Find us on the web and get involved with our work at allianceofleadershipfellows.org.